unless you're well-versed in anthropology, Genesis 10 might as well be written in Portuguese. Uh, even in English, it's a passage which is largely incomprehensible to us as Americans. We just don't get it when we look at a uh, genealogy in the Old Testament, at least not naturally. When I read an ancient genealogy, I always get this feeling, not exactly, but it's something if we could illustrate it, I get the feeling like somebody's blindfolded me, kidnapped me, flown me in an airplane somewhere, dropped me off, sent me off, I take the blindfold off and I see signs, but I can't read them. I hear people talking, but I can't understand them. I don't know where I am and I can't find my bearings because nothing really makes any sense. I feel that way sometimes when I come to a genealogy like this. There's all these names, we just don't make sense of them. They don't seem to, we don't understand how a genealogy is put together. And it's so in Genesis 10 we see people, we understand people, and we see places and cities and we understand them, but they, they just don't, what's the point? It's difficult for us sometimes, uh, particularly from our Western mindset. Uh, notice verse one of Genesis chapter ten. We read, "This is the account of the of the uh, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood." We go then to verse thirty-two. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread over the earth after the flood. Now that much we get. The problem is what goes in between these two bookends, the introduction and the conclusion of the table. We tend not to see why God would confuse us with all these details. But the danger, I think, is then to respond like an auto mechanic that I once met. If you didn't fully understand what he understood, you were an idiot. If he didn't understand something, it wasn't worth understanding. <laughs> And I think sometimes we tend to go to, at Scripture that way. If we don't understand it right away, then it can't really be worth understanding, and we just flip past and move along. We dismiss it. To us, Genesis 10 is a long record of largely unknown, hard-to-pronounce names, and that's all it is. In order to read this chapter with benefit, you either have to be deeply moved by anthropology or you have to be firmly convinced that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to you. God has something to say to us in Genesis 10. What that message is requires some careful thought. It requires some attentive listening to the text. Let's start with just a few uh, preliminary ideas. Genesis 10 baffles the evolutionists. They have never been able to really explain the differences between the people groups on earth, and it's all really a mystery to them. But when they read Genesis 10... They're forced to admit that in the light of history and archaeology, this table of nations is remarkably comprehensive and accurate. This is so astonishing to them because they do not believe in divine inspiration of the Scriptures, but it's also astonishing to them in another sense. Listen to the comments of William Albright, the world-renowned authority on Near Eastern archaeology. He's commenting on this table of nations as it's referred to. He says it stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel. Even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in the genealogical framework, the table of nations in Genesis 10 remains an astonishingly accurate document. This shocks Dr. Albright because he doesn't believe that God can inspire the text. He doesn't believe the biblical account as accurate. 
We do believe in the infallibility of the Word of God, and therefore we believe that there was a universal flood that wiped off everyone from the face of the earth except for eight individuals, Noah, his sons, and their wives. And therefore, Genesis chapter 10 can be assumed to be an accurate historical document which traces the descendants of Noah for several generations after they descended from Mount Ararat. But Genesis 10 is much more than simply a family tree. We find in the text references not only to fathers and sons, but to tribes and to cities and their inhabitants and to countries and lands. It seems strange to us to think of a city or a country being a son of a man, like we find in this chapter. But to the ancient way of thinking, father could often refer to a powerful nation and son could refer to a dependent nation. Brothers were often was a term that was used of allies as they would fight together. They were referred to as brothers. And daughters was often used of suburbs. We are the daughter of Minneapolis here in Savage and Burnsville, Apple Valley, and these surrounding areas. We're daughters in the, uh, in the Eastern sense of thinking. For them, son just carried some type of connection of subordination to the father or some other type of connection in some way. We might, to use an illustration, we might refer to Hawaii as the son of George Washington. Now somebody looking back a long time from now would say, what in the world, what's the connection between George Washington, how can Hawaii be his son? But there's a sense in which George Washington, as the Eastern mind would think, was the father of the nation, and Hawaii is one of the parts of the nation, and people might look at people uh, living uh, natively in Hawaii and say, they're, they're, absolutely, they're not a, a, a anywhere connected at all. But that's what we find here in this text. There's some references like that that might be similar to that, where we don't see a, a national identity that would, would strike us. There's certainly not a racial identity, and yet there's some uh, cities and people called fathers and sons here in this passage. What this genealogy does then is not to simply trace the line of Noah's sons and their direct descendants, but to trace out what became of Noah's sons. In a broad sense, this table reveals the movement of families, clans, and larger people groups as they spread from Mount Ararat, upon which the ark rested, and then later from Babel, chapter 11. So again, the question before us is why does God record this information? In the broadest sense, Genesis 10 is broken down into three sections corresponding to the three sons of Noah. Probably any text that you have, any uh, translation that you have would divide it out that way. You can probably see a heading in your text. There's the Japhethites in verse 2, the Hamites in verse 6, and the Semites in verse 21. Popular understanding of this passage has said, uh, that the three sons of Noah can be understood as the Caucasian, Negroid, and Mongoloid races, or what is uh, just more simply referred to as white, yellow, and brown slash black. That's entirely inaccurate. It, that does not work. Uh, it, it's because a careful reading of the text will show that in all three lines, there are people of darker skin pigment that are found in all three. So to, to make it that is, is playing fast and loose with the text. That is not the point at all. In fact, the whole concept of race as we know it is a consequence of the theory of evolution. Race distinctions are believed by the evolutionists to reflect subspecies which are in the process of evolving into new species. The biblical catalog of nations never considers skin color. The Bible never uses the word race 
You can look through all the pages. There's no concept of race either, really, as we give it that concept from an evolutionary mindset. There's no credence to the concept of race as we've learned it. Yet, even though the Bible tackles anthropology from an entirely different framework than the evolutionists of our day, Genesis 10 is commended as a remarkably accurate document in the light of history and archaeology. You see what I'm saying? You look at the way some of these ideas are discussed in our day, that's not the way the Bible discusses it. But yet they can't argue with the fact that this table is extremely accurate. This does not mean that we can clearly identify every name in this chapter. I want to caution you. There are a number of places and persons we know nothing about, at least yet. But let me also say about the places and names we can identify with the archaeological record, uh, these are the result of incredibly detailed research. Archaeology, anthropology, ethnology, history, all coming together. You could trace some of these names for weeks as to how they have developed a knowledge of what, where these places are, who these people were, and the like. It's, it's an amazing story. We are obviously not going to, to spend our time with that here today. It would, uh, this would be a 50-week course if, if we did that. My goal today is not to go tackle every name but it's simply to take a broad overview to try to get the big point of Genesis 10. Trying to read this genealogy not like an American in the 20th century, but hopefully somewhat like the Hebrews would have read it, who were the original recipients of the book. We enter then upon the discussion of the Japhethites in verse 2. What we need to notice immediately is how the table is laid out. Remember, again, in verse 1, we have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Note that order. Shem, Ham, Japheth. Now, how are those three developed in the text? In the exact opposite order. Japheth, Ham, and Shem. What's going on there? This arrangement is a common scheme found in genealogical work by which a chronicler draws attention to a prominent individual in the table. Who's the prominent individual? Obviously, it's Shem. He's introduced first. And then when it comes to the actual development, he's the one that's dealt with last. The secondary degree of attention is drawn to Ham. The least importance of this table of nations is Japheth. There's two questions then for the, as to that issue. How do we know that Japheth is least important in the genealogy, and why is that? Why do we say that Japheth is the least important in the genealogy? We need to learn again to read the genealogy as, a, as the ancients would and understand, first of all, there's numerical positioning. In a, in a genealogy, important points are made by the numerical position of individuals. The first location is important, the seventh, the tenth, and the last. These are very prominent positions in a genealogy. Shem we find in the first position and in the last. Japheth we find is dealt with, uh, is mentioned last in verse 1, and then dealt with first. In other words, the first initial reference, he's last because he's least important, and then we take care of his genealogy first because he's least important. As the genealogy develops, Japheth is quickly discussed and then basically dismissed. We found the same thing in the idea of chapter 5 of Noah. But uh, the number of entries is also is a second idea that points to Japheth's less than important position. As the 7th and 10th positions in genealogy are very important, so lists of seven items are significant. 
they draw out the idea of completeness. When you look at verse 2, how many names do you find there? We have the sons of Japheth, and we find that he had seven sons. That would indicate to us at least the idea of, of completeness. But now notice verses 3 and 4. There's only two of Japheth's seven sons that are named, right? Only two. But when it comes to the grandchildren, there's seven grandsons of Japheth listed. So the chronicler is obviously not dealing with everything. He's just looking at sevens and drawing out what is essential. Notice in verse 4 that none of these four names are even literal sons. They're cities or regions. The Ketim, for instance, were inhabitants of a Phoenician city in the southwest coast of the island of Cyprus. That's not a son. So the chronicler is carefully drawing out sevens, bringing the list to completion. With these two lists of seven, then, as we look at uh, verses 2, 3, and 4, there's two lists of seven, and with those two lists, Japheth's genealogy is brought to an end. Since the offspring of several of his sons are not even mentioned, and since his grandchildren are place names, it's obvious that this is not an exhaustive family tree. With two lists of seven, Japheth's line is closed, and what is the reason? Again, I think the reason is because he does not play prominently in the storyline of Scripture. That prominent position goes to Shem. Notice verse 5, there's kind of a conclusion there to the, to the line of the Japhethites from the maritime peoples, from these, the maritime people spread out into the territories by their clans within their nations, each with his own language. The maritime peoples, we're not sure of the meaning, but they're apparently ocean-going peoples who settled on coastlines north of Palestine, they began to work their way inland. The point is that the earth is being filled. And it points us back to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1 and the blessing of God that the earth would be filled and populated as people moved off of Ararat and from Babel eventually. Notice that second half of verse 5. It says there territories, clans, nations, languages. These are ways that, these are aspects that divide these various peoples from one another. It's an important formula. Notice verse 20 and notice verse 31. That same formula will be found as it ends out the genealogical line of the Hamites and the Semites. The key here is to realize that the world is being separated by space, that's territories, by clans, that defi it's hard to define, but it seems to be like a, a real big family, not just the immediate family, but a very long, extended family. It's smaller than a tribe, but it's, it's the next step down from a tribe. They are also separated by national ident identity, that is by state, um, something similar to we, it would be Americans uh, separated from other countries in that sense, and then by language difference. So the separation into groups which are scattered over the face of the globe is the point. The Japhethites are people who are settled to the north, the northeast, the northwest of Palestine and play a very minor role in the Old Testament. We move on quickly to the Hamites. The sons of Ham, verse 6, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Cush, northeast Africa. Mizraim, Egypt. Put, Libya, northern Africa. And Canaan. Now the inhabitants, uh, the Canaanites, of course, are the inhabitants of Palestine. By skin color, we would naturally link them with the Semites, but that's not the way the Bible deals with it. 
They are Hamites, according to the way the Scriptures play it out. And it draws back to the curse of chapter 9 and verse 25, which is very important to the Hebrews. Chapter 9 and verse 25, you remember it there, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. As we go back to chapter 10 and verse 7, we notice again a highly selective listing of seven names. You see it there in verse 7. Then as we come to verse 8, there's a noticeable interruption in the flow of the genealogy. Some lights are coming on here. A new Hebrew word is introduced in the table. The NIV has it, he was, was the father of. It's actually just one Hebrew word. The Hebrew word yeled means to sire or to father. It's the first time we find it in the, in the text here in chapter 10. And it reminds us of chapter 5 and verse 28, where Lamech fathers Noah. There's kind of these, this screeching halt. Hold on, the genealogy comes to a stop. And then we have the fathering of some individual, and the text goes on to describe this individual, or as he's referred to here as Nimrod, verse 8. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. We have there Nimrod's fame. He was a mighty hunter and it likely refers to animals, the hunting of animals, but I think it's also very possibly a reference to people. He was a mighty and powerful individual. We can't really faithfully read the text and not be reminded of something here. This reference to Nimrod draws our attention back to Lamech, who avenges his own murder in the city of Cain in chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. You might want to just re remind yourself of that. 4:23 and 24. It also reminds us in chap of chapter 6 and verse 4. Nimrod is what kind of a hunter? What kind of a warrior? He's a mighty. That mighty, great, that word translated mighty or great or powerful is the same word we found in chapter 6 and verse 4. There were mighty people developing on the face of the earth. We remember the sons of God followed their ways. What's the point? There was this mighty strong city of Cain led by this Lamech who didn't need God. But that world was destroyed by the flood. Now that the world's been destroyed by the flood, we have a new generation of people following from Noah. We have another mighty person, another great individual standing up, this Nimrod who um, is, is a leader of people and someone that is ruling by strength and by power. Micah chapter 5 and verse 5 calls Assyria the land of Nimrod. Again, it just plays fast and loose with people's ideas of race as they're laid out today, but the, the Assyrians are connected with the Hamites again, as were the Canaanites. But Micah 5.5 5 connects Nimrod with the Assyrians. What do we know about Assyria? It was a savage empire. It uh, did not regard God, except for once. Remember when that was? Jonah. When Jonah went there, there was a turning to God. But the history of Assyria is a violent, cruel, oppressive culture. And Nimrod was the father. We see Nimrod's kingdom introduced in verse 10. The first centers of, the kingdom, of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and Shinar. Shinar and Mesopotamia. From that land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir. Ir means city in Hebrew, and Kalah. And Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. I, 
Time doesn't allow us to stop for very long. But with Eric and Akkad and Kalna and certainly with Babylon and Nineveh, we have an individual here who is leading the establishment of cities of great power and great authority of military might. Secular historians see this area as the birthplace of civilization. When I, I studied ancient history for a while at the university, they all started in Mesopotamia. This is where it all began. Of course, in their construct, this is where the first person evolved and, and, and where we find... What, what were they really seeing? What they were really seeing was this is the first place on earth where there was a, a great and powerful established civilizations as Nimrod is trying to build these cities and trying to develop power for himself and for people against the will of God. That's what we find. So it's very accurate with what the secular historians find is they call the birthplace of civilization. It parallels Cain's city in chapter 4, verses 19 through 22. You cannot read the biblical text and think of the word Babylon or the word Assyria and not realize that we have here a representation of the offspring of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, of powerful city-states that will rise up in conflict with each other, but in ultimate rebellion against God. Now in verse 11, we have Assyria uh, figuring large into the biblical record, as does Babylon. It's interesting again that Assyria is ethnically linked with the uh, Semitic line in verse 22, but in verse 11, Assyria is identified with Nimrod, a descendant of Ham. Now what's going on there? I mentioned that as we look at it, we think of Assyria as connected to the Semites, but Actually, in the table, they're connected to both, the Semites and the Hamites. Again, God's not so concerned uh, with, with, with bloodlines as such. By connecting Assyria to Nimrod, Moses shows that any city can be associated with Babylon. These appear then to be, as one has called it, the initial stirrings of a larger-than-life symbolic value of the city of Babylon. Where does Babylon go from this place in the text of Scripture? We know that Babylon is a theme through the remainder of the Bible. Babylon is the area that will captivate the children of Israel. We think of Daniel, for instance, living in Babylon. We think of the children of Israel coming back to reestablish Palestine from the land of Babylon. And where does the theme of Babylon end? In Revelation chapter 17, where the city rises up ultimately in power, seeking to uh, usurp the power of God and is finally destroyed. So I, I like that phrase, the bigger than life or larger than life symbolic value of the city of Babylon. It's initiated here with Nimrod. It takes us back again to Genesis 3 and the struggle of the two seeds as it's developing. The godly seed and the ungodly seed. The name Nimrod is associated with the Hebrew word for rebellion, and rabbinic tradition identifies him as the leader of the building of the Tower of Babel. Now, we don't know about that, if that was actually the case, but that's what uh, tradition would say. The point is that we have here, after the flood, another Lamech. We have another strong leader. We have, again, the establishment of a culture, of an environment, of power, of ruling over people which ignores the glory of God and which seeks to establish the glory of man. That is a very important section in the genealogy. It's really right at the very center of it to, to a large degree. We move then to verse 13 and 14. We find another list of seven names. And we note that with these four lists of seven names, 
the chronicler gives a complete accounting of the sons of that group without actually listing all the sons. So we had seven and seven under the Japhethites, under the Hamites, we had seven and six and seven, verses six and seven. Then verses 13 and 14, we have seven again. But this is the last list of seven. Now think about it. What's going on then? We have these sevens that are completing and finishing out, but it's the last list in Genesis 10. From this point on, the names of the genealogy take on more and more significance to Israel and the remaining text of Genesis. So consequently, the chronicler loses interest in neatly concluding certain branches with seven names. His interest now is to give a fuller accounting in the, in the interest of the overall purpose of the book. So with that in mind, we come to verse 15, and we have again something of an interruption. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Arkshites, Shinites, Arvidites, and Zemorites, and Hamathites. I wonder if pastors have nightmares about it's reading these things in public. But uh, there, there's a list uh, of peoples who lived where? They inhabit Palestine. We come to then a major break, the middle of verse 18. I, I wish the verses had been divided there, but verse 18, later the Canaanite clans scattered. Well, that draws our attention. Something, we just had a break here in this flow of names. We got name, 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 name. Woo! Again, there's the screeching of the breaks, and we have this reference to the Canaanite clans. And then verse 19 says, And the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, and Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. I mean, that would be almost like drawing out the boundaries of, let's say, the state of Minnesota in the nation of America. It comes to a screeching halt and starts to draw out boundaries. The text has never done that before. What's the point? Why? Well, think about it. Where is Israel when this text is being written? Where are the people of God? They're somewhere in the process of leaving Egypt and entering into Palestine. And so this table of nations makes very prominent the lines, the locations, of the, the boundary lines of the land of Palestine. The table of nations in Genesis 10 is an ancient record but it's carefully constructed in the interest of God's chosen nation, Israel. As far as the landmass goes, Canaan is nothing but a little dot on the map. But we have here very specific boundaries detailed because it is this land that God's people will inherit. The discussion of Ham's descendants climaxes with the description of the boundaries of Canaan. The chronicler's purposes are complete, and so he quickly concludes verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, and their territories and nations. What's the, what are the two major points in discussing the line of Ham? The establishment of these great cities pictured by Nimrod and the boundaries of Canaan. He then moves to the feature person on the table, and that is Shem. Verse 21, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. There's some really interesting things going on there. First of all, we don't know who's older. Uh, it's really difficult because of the way the Hebrew text reads. It just says the brother of Japheth the elder. Well, is Shem the elder or is Japheth the elder? It, the most natural way to read it seems to be that Japheth is the older brother. 
Shem being listed first in verse 1 then is very insignificant. A younger brother listed first. But what's also very important here is verse 21, the second part of the verse. Do you see it there? Did you see something strange? Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Now that's an unusual way to say it. It's not, these are Shem's sons. That, is, that waits till verse 22. The sons of Shem are, and they're listed there. But in verse 21, before he lists formally the specific sons of Shem, he says, Shem is the father of the ancestors of Eber. So Eber stands out in lights. It's like it's highlighting it, saying this Eber person is very important. Eber is actually, as we go down through the text, a great-grandson of Shem. By naming Eber in the introduction of Shem's line, verse 21, Moses points our attention to Eber. Who is he? He's the father of the people we call Hebrews. Eber. Eber's place in the genealogy is emphasized not only here, but also verse 25. We'll skip down through a number of names in this genealogy. We notice verse 25. Two sons were born to Eber. So verse 21, there's this Eber guy introduced. He seems to be totally out of place. We come down to 25, and the genealogy fans out a little bit, not to one son or several sons and just specifically named, but to two sons, and we're going to discuss them for a little bit. Verse 25, the sons were born, two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan, and then Joktan, verse 26 through 29, his descendants are listed. Well, who's this Peleg, and what is the idea of dividing? The word Peleg means to divide. So we have to ask, what was the nature of the division? There's a really intriguing idea. I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I, it's sure fun to think about. Uh, the word divide, as it's used in the Hebrew, is almost always used in context of water. And there is this thinking, again, if we take the biblical account at face value, and a scientist look at it at face value, there seems to be, after the flood, the breaking of the watery canopy, a, a, a great freezing of the polar ice caps. What that would have done would have lowered the level of water in the oceans, and what we know, what it seems even archaeologically to be very possible, there were some land bridges connecting the continents at that time. As the ice melted, the water of the oceans would have risen, cutting off those land bridges, and that might be what is meant here by the dividing of the earth. That's just an intriguing thought. We can't prove that. But um, the more obvious contextual idea is chapter 11, where God divides the nations by language. And that might be more the idea here, that in Peleg's day, the Tower of Babel went down and God split the people by language, divided them. But someone else has brought out here a really interesting concept as far as division goes, and that is that um, it's possible here that there was a division between Joktan and Peleg, the two sons of Eber. In verses 26 through 30, we have Joktan's descendants. Well, nothing is said of Peleg's descendants at all, right? Wrong. Chapter 11, verse 10, Peleg's descendants are picked up. 
So it might be that there was a division in the sons of Eber. And I don't know if we can go too far on that, but it may be that the situation at Babel divided not only the peoples of the earth into various language groups, but also divided Eber's descendants into those who followed the way of the city of Babylon and those who followed the way of God through Abraham. Because when we come to chapter 11 and verse 10, Peleg's descendants are picked up, and who's one of his descendants? Abraham. Well, it's all intriguing thoughts. What the division is, I don't know. I don't have a clue. But who knows? Maybe all these things took place at one time. At any rate, the, we find there in verse 30, just that quick note, the region where they live stretched from Mesha towards Sephar, the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their, you hear it again? Here it is for the third time, their clans, their languages, their territories, and their nations. Verse 31. Thus concludes the table. Uh, verse 32 just kind of is the, is the bookend that uh, encloses the table. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. The emphasis is the spreading, the dispersion, the growing of, the, of humanity. Give me just a couple minutes, all right? I, again, you wonder what preachers... Uh, have nightmares about this is another one <laughs> preaching a passage like this this is tough and I appreciate your uh, your attention as far as you can bring it here today but let's put it together just real quickly all right we've taken a look at the text in a literary manner but what is it teaching what is it saying first of all it points certainly to the unity of the nations all people on earth are the descendants of Noah all people we all have the same physical father. No matter the color of our skin or the location of our ancient ancestors or ethnicity or whatever we want to say, we were all created in the image of God and Noah is our father. That says a lot and it says how we should think as God's people. But Genesis 10 intends to accomplish much more than evidencing the unity of, of people. In Genesis 10, God sets out, sets the stage upon which the story of redemption will be played out. In Genesis 10, the nations of the world are arranged by the sovereign hand of God. I get the picture that he's almost like uh, the writer of a play. And he comes out on the stage and he sets the pieces, the stage where he wants them to be. He spreads out the nations just like he chooses. Look back again at Acts 17. We won't take long. Just, just hang with me a little bit longer. This will bring it all together. And I think if you, can, if you can follow me here, this will allow Genesis 10 to take a leap forward in your understanding of Scripture. Acts 17, verse 24. Acts 17, 24. Think of it again in terms of the outworking of the worldwide plan of salvation that God has as he lays out the nations in Genesis 10. I think Paul is probably thinking about Genesis 10 when he says in verse 24 of Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. 
God did this so that men would seek him. What does that mean? God did this. God spread people out. God disseminated people across the face of the globe so that they would seek him. Three thoughts. First of all, I think that happens by what we might call global polarity of the nations. The global polarity. Let me explain that. I don't know if this seems scientifically possible, so don't laugh at me if you know it isn't. But is it possible to have magnets that you know don't come together, but they're, they're opposite polarity, and so they, they, they push each other away, not only on one side, but on two sides? I don't know if that's possible, but just picture it as a metal dish, and you've got 70 uh, magnets in there, and there is opposite polarity all around. That is what we have with the nations. There isn't a linking up together against God, but we have here a sense of what we might call parity or uh, negative polarity. They don't attract. Why is that so important to the salvation of humanity? Genesis 6, 5. God looked down and saw that the wickedness of man, that the thoughts and imagination of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Genesis eleven six says, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, that's build the Tower of Babel, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Do you see it? Unity among nations and among peoples that is not resisted by the sovereign hand of God would mean that people came together in utter rebellion against it. If fallen humanity, which follows the lead of Cain and Lamech and Nimrod, were given unrestrained powers to unite, our world would be plunged into a moral darkness so intense no one would survive, let alone find God. But in His wise providence, God has divided language and, and spatially and culturally separated people groups, and He's promoted military and social tensions between nations so that the peoples of the earth hold each other's potential for evil at bay. They do this not because they love God, but because they love themselves. And so we have an environment of suspicion and mutually conflicting intrigue among the nations of the world. Why does God do this? Because he loves the nations of the earth, all of them, and every last individual in them. There's this global polarity. It will not all unite against God, but there's these differences that are maintained so that we can still seek God. Secondly, we have here geographic preeminence of the land. Map out the names in this list, and you know what you begin to see? This is where the lights start coming on for me this week. You, you, you see a dartboard. You see rings. There's the Japhethites up to the north. There's the Hamites down to the south and the east. There's the Shemites that are flowing through the middle and off to the east side. And what you're seeing is a, is a scattering of the nations in a circular manner. And you know what the bullseye is? The land of Israel. The land of Israel that's described in the middle of the genealogy with borders. God is drawing a big cosmic dartboard and he's pointing right at the center of it and saying, Palestine. That's what's happening as we see these nations spread out here. And to this land, this bullseye on the dartboard, he sends a people. 
And so we have thirdly the genealogical fulfillment of a prophecy. Global polarity. Nations spread fighting each other so that evil doesn't grow too rampant. Secondly, the geographic preeminence of the land of Israel. And thirdly, the genealogical fulfillment of a prophecy. Genesis chapter 12, we have the call of Abraham to go where? To the land. There's the center of the dartboard. There's the bullseye, Abraham. What does, where does Abraham live? In Mesopotamia, God says, go. Get over to Palestine. That's the center. That's the bullseye. It brings to mind again Genesis 3.15 as we begin to see it work out. The line of Abel and the line of Seth leading to the person of Noah, leading to the person of Shem, leading to the person of Abraham, leading to the king of David who reigns in Israel. Leading to whom? The Lord Jesus Christ who was born right there on the bullseye. In fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the Son of God died crushing Satan's head and paying the penalty for the sins of the nations in Israel, in Palestine. So in Genesis 10, God marks out the bullseye of His redemptive plan. He marks out the place on planet Earth where He will send His Son to die, to crush the head of Satan, to rise in victory over the grave, and someday to return in order to reign over the nations of the earth from that place on the map. Genesis 10 is not unimportant. Genesis 10 is the backdrop of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the nations, that He gave His only begotten Son to come in fulfillment of prophecy to a land called Palestine to die on a cross. God carefully marks out the spot and is saying essentially in Genesis 10, watch world, watch, right here. And as members of the nations, we gather about as far away from Israel as you can get, but we gather in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity now, since Christ has come, really has very little to do, if anything, with being Japhethites, Hamites, or Semites. It has to do with being the people of God.